and welcome. Welcome, welcome home to a very special edition of the One Hood Power Hour. We're very excited about the discussion that we're going to have tonight. As you know, I am your co-host, Kahari Mosley, joined by a special a co-host, Dr. Sherhal Russell uh, from BW3, as well as the co-host of What Black Pittsburgh Needs to Know is uh, pinch hinting tonight. It is still is baseball season. And so, uh, so Cheryl is joining me tonight. Uh, no, I'm not miracle with just different hair. <laughs> and I cannot do as good a job at this as she does, but I am happy to step in tonight and excited about talking to these candidates. Yeah, yeah. We're cool. re really happy to have you and, and had a great time earlier today talking about, you know, how, how tonight is going to go. So this is the sixth of six uh, candidate forums that we started at mid-September. This is the final one featuring what we call the slate of five judicial candidates, five of the eight candidates that One Hood Power endorsed along with um, the Abolitionist Law Center and, and APA and Unite um, earlier in, in, in the springtime. So we're really excited to bring them back. It's almost uh, coming full circle. And before uh, I, I pass it over um, to Dr. Hall Russell to introduce uh, our guest this evening, I did want to just give a couple housekeeping things that, that we do uh, just reminding people that today is the voter registration deadline tonight at eleven fifty nine p.m mm. uh, if you're registering online this is the deadline to register to vote today um a, a week from tomorrow will be the deadline to apply for a vote by mail ballot and as you know tuesday november 2nd um is election day and, and today we have five candidates running for the allegheny County Court of Common Pleas. And, and as we do, we try to give a, a short, brief breakdown of what these offices actually mean. And in, in the state of Pennsylvania, in the uh, unified uh, uh, judicial system, as they call it in Pennsylvania, the Court of Common Pleas are the general trial courts in Pennsylvania. They're organized into 60 judicial districts. Most districts follow the geographic boundaries of counties but seven districts are combined, are comprised of two counties combined. Each district has from one to 93 judges and a president judge and a court administrator. Um, and and um, so we have uh, five candidates probably the, the, running for what is the fifth judicial district of Pennsylvania, which is um, Allegheny County. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to uh, pass it over to my esteemed, esteemed guest host, uh, Dr. Cheryl Hall-Russell, to um, introduce um, our, our candidates and, and uh, open up with the opening question for tonight's forum. Yeah, the, the thing I love about this is, you know, too often for years, you know, we would go into the booth and we're looking at a list, you know, this long with all these candidates, and we were never quite sure. One thing I have to give it to One Hood Power about is we, you know, there's been the ability to kind of break this down to real people and talk about really what these positions do. And so I am delighted to, to welcome um, our guests for tonight. I, I'm going to have them introduce themselves. I, I don't need to do that. We're going to um, have them come on individually. I'm going to ask them where they are currently serving and what are you most proud of professionally? Share that with our audience because we want them to know you like we do. So who wants to popcorn that off? Come on, who's spilling? Who's spilling? You know what? I'm sure all of y'all took a talking at this point. But, uh, but yeah, tell us, where are you currently serving and what are you most proud of professionally? I'll start. My name is uh, Tiffany Sizemore and I am 
uh, an assistant, I'm sorry, an associate clinical law professor at Duquesne Law School. Um, I started and uh, continued to direct the youth advocacy clinic there, um, which is working on delinquency matters for young people um, and special education and school discipline matters um, all throughout Allegheny County. Um, I am most proud, actually, professionally of that work. Um, I last the public defenders of the juvenile division um, about seven years ago because I wanted to change the way that we represent children in this county. Um, and so I'm very proud of the clinic that we've built and created. Um, I think that it is um, innovative. It has been responsive to young people's needs during the COVID crisis educationally. Um, and so that is uh, what I am most proud of. And I'm really happy to be here tonight um, with the five, uh, four other women from the slate of eight. And we were all um, victorious on May 18th. And I'm incredibly proud of this group of women. <laughs> Terrific. A lot to be proud of. Who's next? I can go next. Um, every time I hear Tiffany talk about her work, it gives me energy. So I think I'm ready to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Nicola Henry Taylor. And I currently serve as the Director of Diversity of Duquesne University School of Law, but I also have a private practice where I focus on criminal law and family law. And that's not a common occurrence that a, a, a lawyer would have those two areas combined. But I learned how to be interdisciplinary when I was an assistant district attorney uh, handling the mental health court. In that court, it was called a problem-solving court, and it truly is. Uh, it could be better, um, like getting rid of people having to plead guilty uh, or be found guilty and be adjudicated and have felonies or misdemeanors on their record. But the, the work that it does is important because you have a special judge, you have specialized probation officers, you have a dedicated DA, a dedicated um, public defender, you have people from justice-related services all working together for the good of the community, uh, Im implementing restorative sanctions within the program and making sure that all of the needs, whether it be uh, housing, mental health, um, social security uh, benefits, all of those things are being addressed and looking at the person as a whole person. So that, um, that that's what I'm most proud of. And I use what I learned in, in mental health court in my practice now. Fantastic. All right. I've got, got our edition. Now we are up to our full five now, which I'm excited about. All right, Chelsea, what do you, what do you want to add to this? Sure. Thank you, Carol. So uh, my name is Chelsea Wagner, and I want to say thank you to One Hood um, and all of the partner organizations for endorsing all of us, um, both in the primary and here now. So I serve as the Allegheny County Controller. I have been elected to three terms in that role. And prior to that, I was a state representative, also elected there for three terms. So um, a lot of the work that I'm most proud of has been in different ways of public advocacy. So if I look to the criminal justice system, um, I serve by virtue of being Allegheny County Controller on the jail oversight board. And these some of the measures that we've been able to accomplish there, it's a work in progress. There's still a lot of work to do, but despite a few examples, um, making sure we got a private predatory healthcare provider out of the jail, making sure that we got juveniles in their own pod, and also making sure that we were able to get nonviolent um, pregnant female offenders out of the jail setting. 
So as I said, there's a lot of work to do, um, but specific to the criminal justice system, those are some of the things that I'm most proud of, but then also some of the larger public advocacy issues that I've been able to work on. And I would cite um, work to remove lead um, from our water in Pittsburgh and also working to ensure that our residents continue to have access to our healthcare systems in light of what was um, the major tipping point for the battle between UPMC and Highmark. You, you don't do much, do you? I, did you just have, <laughs> I have a lot of good partners. I have a lot of good partners. It's not just me. Oh, man, this is so exciting <laughs> to hear the, the depth and breadth of the work that you guys do. Uh, Lisa, can you uh, let us know too? Okay. Um, my name is Lisa Middleman. I'm a 34-year public defender here in Allegheny County. Um, I'm proud that I was the first um, woman ever in the homicide unit. I currently try um, murder and death penalty cases for the PD's office. But the thing that I think that I'm most proud of is running for district attorney in 2019 in order to I guess, um, change the way the criminal legal system operates. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that I was able to, I think, engage people in conversations about criminal justice that had maybe never given it a lot of thought, or if they had, they didn't um, have anyone who could tell them, well, here's what the nitty gritty day-to-day um, aspect of a court case is. So I think that I am most proud that I was able to have a lot of conversations and maybe start some with some folks about the need for reform in our criminal legal system. So critical. Um, and let, let me do my round robin here. We've got Rena. How you doing? I'm glad to see you on the call. Good evening and God bless you all. Look at that beautiful smile on both you and Kahari. You all are, are beautiful. Thank you all. <laughs> and the ladies that I'm on this ticket with, it's just a blessing. And, and I, too, want to thank you, One Hood, as well as all of the partner organizations for getting us through the primary, for really uh, uh, organizing and getting five of the women, it's five of us, or six of us, five of us from the slate of eight through to this point and of course we need your help to get it through on november the 2nd but it's an honor to be with these ladies and um i think that that right now i serve as a uh, mental health hearing officer um i have done that for 26 years and i've been on a uh, i've been adjudicating uh cases in the lower in the minor judiciary for 26 years and heard over 50,000 cases uh, i'm certainly very proud of that uh, additionally, I've represented a lot of families and persons in the community, but I, for many years, uh, represented children in juvenile court. And I actually, I can't say that there's one aspect of what I have done that I love more than the other, because when I'm representing children and advocating for children, I absolutely love that. And when they, and some have come back, as I would tell them, I'll come back and knock on my door one day and tell me you're doing well. Um, and I've had that happen. And there's such a, you don't get a lot. Of, I think we all work in social service type areas and we don't get a lot of satisfaction uh, in doing what you do every day. So you kind of have to know how to get your own. But every once in a while, somebody comes and tells you what a phenomenal job and how much you help them in life. Those are, those are proud moments. And, and 
sit on a bench, whether it's as a magistrate, uh, whether it's as a, 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 a mental health hearing officer, liquor control board, or even adjudicating uh, zoning and, and, and planning hearings. I give people a chance to be heard. I listen to both sides of the case and I treat people fairly. And, and I'm very proud of being able to provide a service to the public that they deserve, that they actually have a constitutional right to have. And so in, in both settings, whether it's advocating or whether it's uh, a, as an adjudicator, I, I, I take pride in what I do and I've had many proud moments in that. Thank you. Wow. Um, I, I just hope folks are listening who, who may not have heard you uh, before and that they're tuning in tonight to learn just how much you're brief. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so I will have this, uh, Gahari, what do, you, what do you have? Oh, my first question was going to be about accessibility. It's something that's come up a lot. Um, I'm sure during, um, your, your time out on the campaign trail, you know, how do we make, you know, the courts more accessible kind of feeling like there's a disconnect between the, the court system and, and folks in the community. It's like the only time they hear from the courts or about the courts is if, you know, they're in a conflict with somebody or they're in some sort, you know, tough situation, but what can we do to, uh, you know, connect the course? Cause of course do more than obviously, you know, um, just there when something goes wrong, you know? Um, so, so I guess maybe if we start in, re in reverse order, um, you know, uh, you know, what are the, some of the things that, uh, that can be done, uh, going into next year to make, um, the courts more connected to the community and more accessible. Thank you. And can you all hear me? Yep. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. I can't hear you as well. So that's why I'm asking if you can hear me. Some, something changed on my phone, but the, I was trying to get in on my computer. But so to make the courts more accessible, I, I find in my travels and I practice on a, on a uh, maybe not a daily basis, but quite often where uh, members of the community would like to have a problem and would like to pursue it. And because they don't have the money to uh, go pay an attorney, uh, you know, or the fees or, or whatever it takes to pursue whatever their problem is, they don't pursue it and they back down from it. And, and I know that in the um, family division, we make the family division uh, accessible, the, 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 the cases there, whether it's uh, custody, divorce, support, and we have a whole system set up where you can, even PFAs, where you can come in and you can get help. You have uh, legal clinics and, and some of our, uh, uh, some of my colleagues on this uh, uh, show know exactly what we're talking about because they, they are the uh, supervisors of that and, and administrate that. And so those sort of systems where we have maybe legal law students and or pro bono lawyers that are willing to come in and sit with uh, uh, members of the community that don't have the money to be able to go hire an attorney or to pursue a case, that they can sit down and get help with pursuing some of these matters in a pro se fashion. Uh, or that we have you know, even more pro bono services that, that are accessible to people because there are pro bono services out here, but they don't serve all of the uh, matters that, that our clients have an interest in. And, and some of them have such strict uh, 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 income guidelines that people, people in the, you know, lower end of the middle range are not, not uh, you know, they're not, they're not, they don't qualify 
And so I think that we need to stretch, stretch that income uh, guideline so that more people are able to qualify as well. Thank you. I believe Chelsea's next. Sorry, I forgot the order. Thank you. Um, so I, I absolutely concur with Rena. And I think when you look at some of the judges across the different divisions do this well now, where they essentially run their chambers as sort of a clinic, because we have to recognize that so many of the litigants across all of the different divisions are pro se. And I think that has shifted quite a bit over the years. So one of the common misperceptions that I believe is out there is as if these courts are like a TV drama that people see on TV, when in reality, you have so many pro se litigants, people who are representing themselves. And I think like Rena said, um, those are just the people who proceed um, in some action or have no option other than to proceed. So I think that's really important. But I think it also goes back to electing people who like ourselves, um, who understand that this is a public system, that it doesn't belong to um, judges who sit behind a bench in robes, that it's funded by the public, and that though it is made up of 43 judges plus the senior judges, we are to serve the public. And the public, the taxpayers, um, this is their system, and it needs to be responsive to them. And I would also say that to be able to have some more kind of forward-facing um, people, judges who are accessible to the community, a lot of people think who are also in the know that once you become a judge, you can't talk to people in the community. Um, and that's really wrong. And I think all of us are committed to making that seem different. But then also understanding that within the courthouse, not just the judge, but every individual who the public interfaces with should understand where those people come from, should not have a sense of entitlement, but also know that these are the individuals that we are there to serve. Uh, thank you, Lisa. So it's funny because one of the things that you learn when you're a candidate is that you have to follow the rules of judicial conduct, even though you're not a judge yet. You have to follow the rules even if you're just running. So um, all of us had to look up the rules to see what they said and to see what the actual canons of ethics were. And one was really interesting to me, which was ensuring the right to be heard. And it it said basically the judge has to give everyone who has an interest in a proceeding, the right to be heard. And it wasn't um, the right to file motions, the right to speak, the right to anything else. It was to be heard. And I, that phrasing really struck me because working in the criminal division, I think a lot of people don't get heard. You know, the judges who sit on the bench don't always have an understanding of folks who are on the autism spectrum or have some other um, intellectual or developmental disability. Um, people who struggle with addiction and, and mental health issues are frequently treated as if they um, are somehow obstreperous or trying to be obstructive to the process um, rather than people who just have difficulty expressing themselves. So I'm really excited to try to partner with um, social work, masters, uh, candidates, 
I guess you would call them as students in the master's programs at the University of Pittsburgh and Carlo University to try to get um, externships for those people in courtrooms. Because I think if judges had access to people who were a little bit more knowledgeable maybe than they were about um, uh, seeing and dealing with people who struggle with disabilities with which the judge is not necessarily familiar, um, it would be of great help to people actually being heard by the courts. I know that other folks have a lot of ideas about um, reducing the costs and fees so that folks do have act better access to the courts. And I'll let them talk about that because my great passion is making sure that people who struggle um, with disabilities and the forgotten people of Allegheny County actually have an opportunity to be treated with respect and dignity and have the chance to be heard by the judges. Uh, thank you. We'll go Nicola and then Tiffany to round out. Well, I think you're going to hear a lot of the same reoccurring themes because that's why I think we all get along so well, because we're really looking forward to making some changes. So one of the things that was talked about, but I'd want to also talk about is civic engagement. There are groups like uh, Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts who have judges like Judge Clark on there. Um, Judge McPappas and I just did a civic engagement on what is the magistrate level? What is the court of common pleas? What is Commonwealth Court? Teaching the public what the systems are, because that's a huge disconnect when you don't even know what, what a, a pleading is, what each court does. So that's important. Also, I think that unfortunately in our country and in our county, money resources is a huge obstacle to accessibilities to the court. And one thing that I see in family division is there's a gap where there's a lot of funding for women um, in, protect, in protection from abuse cases. There's free legal services. There's not, not that for fathers and their parental rights can be affected. And so getting more grant funding to fill those gaps, to fill the gaps of a psychological evaluation or having a guardian and light them appointed on a case where people who have more money can get to the root cause of their cases when you, if you don't have those, that, those resources, you may not. And I know that there's work being done on that, but we could do more. Um, a father or mother might miss out because they don't have money to pay for supervised visitation. Or sometimes there could be, as Lisa talked about, social work workers teaming with attorneys. There is some grant funding and dependency court for that. I, I, I believe that her program will be phenomenal, but there are times where we may need some, some paid resources. Um, we need to also train the court staff in making decisions that a lot of times people go to the courthouse, they may never see the judge. When you go to the PFA court or you go to support court, you may only see the domestic relations officer or a hearing officer. Um, similarly, um, that may happen in some other divisions um, where uh, it's, it may be an arbitrator, a arbitration and you may never see an actual judge. We need to train every person that makes any decisions or interfaces with any um, citizen to be respectful and to not use implicit bias in any decisions. So, um, you know, because it could be a traumatic uh, experience to go to court. So if we have people who are trauma-informed, educated, and knowledgeable and respectful, um, I, I believe that we will have better results for our, our, our um, citizens when they go to court. Thank you, Tiffany. So in addition to what's been mentioned, I would just name a few um, things. I would like to see some clear signage in all of the courthouse buildings when you walk in 
um, that is um, available for the public, whether that's digital signage or um, just the old school like signs on the stands that direct people where to go when they come into the courthouse. There is a strong, um, I think, lack of recognition about the trauma that some people face when they come into the courthouse. Um, and so I would like to see signage for people who may not feel comfortable walking up to a deputy sheriff who may have a disability that um, prevents them from communicating um, with others. Um, we have to realize that once people get through the metal detector, that has its own level of trauma um, for some people. And so I would like to see some clear signage about where to go. Um, and it, depending on what you're here for at the entrance of all of the facilities, city, county building, orphans court, criminal court, family court, um, I would like to see um, one thing that I think people don't really think about is that outside of criminal and juvenile, a lot of people come to court and they don't have lawyers for the matter that they're there for. So I would like to see um, all of our courthouse forms written at a grade level that is accessible to the greatest number of people, whether that be fourth grade or fifth grade uh, reading level, um, so that people can feel like they're understanding the forms that they're filling out. Um, and then finally, one thing again around trauma uh, that I would like to see, and maybe this is too lofty of a goal, but certainly it's a personal goal um, for my courtroom, is that I would like to see courts start on time. Um, it is very traumatic to sit in a courthouse all day waiting for important decisions to be made about your life, maybe waiting for just another court date. Um, and when we respect, when we say um, that we respect the community and that we want the community to have a different view of the courthouse. I think that starts with starting on time um, and to the greatest ex extent possible staying on time. Can I just interject and say maybe even having staggering, st staggered start times? You know, everybody comes to court at nine o'clock and your case may not be here till three. Why not have some people at nine, some at 10, some at 11? People lose work time they pay for excessive child care when they're all day and they don't have to be there all day it's horrible in juvenile court where tiffany is you could have a start time of noon and not get out of there until seven at night which is unacceptable sorry because now <laughs> it's such a good and a lot of courts have actually started the uh, uh staggered times since covid to try to keep people spaced apart that's a yep. great point and so we know covid taught us we could do a lot of things well so hopefully the courts remember that well, I'm now curious. I mean, what if what impact can you have on on things like that? I'm changing times. Steph, you all feel this is a good idea. Do you or in your positions, should you be elected? Are you able to make those changes? You can certainly do what you want in your courtroom. You can have there are judges in juvenile court who have staggered start times and will actually follow them and um, who take the time to think about the type of hearing that it is. So how much time should we allot to that hearing? Um, it's not hard, especially if you're an experienced um, attorney or a judge with a lot of experience. These things aren't hard to do, but it's about, and I think um, maybe Chelsea or Lisa said, it's about the thoughtfulness of it, right? You have to care enough to do that. You have to care enough that you have to be cognizant of the fact that coming to court is traumatic. And I think one thing Gahari said at the beginning in the question is, not everything that happens to the courthouse at the courthouse is bad. Some people are there to get married. Some people are there to adopt a child, right? And so um, we can do, um, we can be a better public service to people um, by doing small things 
that show a lot of respect um, and recognition um, of the space that we're in. And if I may add, okay. Chelsea, go ahead. I, I'll be brief, but I um, to your question, so I think I think of a lot of this as I did even in the legislature. I went in with a group when I was elected to the legislature. We turned the legislature over by twenty five percent. And you think of critical mass and critical mass, whether it's people who are thinking differently, whether it's women, whether it's um, finally having more black judges being elected. Um, so I think when you see more people adhering to different standards, there then becomes a pressure on the other judges and especially with the commitment to transparency. So these are things that Tiffany running a court with him on time all the time. That's something that I think is new work and for people to see and to understand um, that impact. All right, Rena. Yeah, thank you. Again, I'm having a difficult time hearing you all. I apologize. Um, so some of the things that have been talked about can be done immediately. Those things are, number one, listening to letting parties have their full and fair opportunity to be heard. Honestly, I've been doing that for 26 years. I've been uh, uh, urged by council. I've also been urged by other members of committees that I've sat on to, you know, shut people down. Don't let them, you're letting them go on too long. But I really believe that you have a right to be heard. And how can you make a decision when you haven't heard both sides of the case? So they learned to, uh, you know, they learned a little patience working with me because they had, I, I had control. So I got it. So I allowed them to go on and I listened. And, and before we all made a decision and, and certainly before I'm sitting a bench by myself, and I also, with the um, uh, with the time, you know, we all have the ability to set the uh, staggered times if we want to do that right away. And and we certainly, we certainly have to all go in and be fair. That's what we can do right away. We can be fair with our cases, and 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 that's so important. We can treat people with respect. So important, you know. But some of the other thing, uh, like setting up. Like what I initially talked about, setting up some of these uh, uh, systems where people can come in and learn how to put their case together pro se with some help from law students. Those things take a little bit of time to get set up. So you can't do that. Like you can't walk in and start that on day one. The other things that we just talked about, you can do those from day one. It's, it's up to you as a judge, not only up to you, but it's imperative for you as a judge that you take those matters into hand. Uh I'm loving this. I mean, the words that are popping up, respect, access, equity, social support, understanding trauma. How are you as women? How do you think having this number of women then coming onto the, into the court, how's that going to impact how, how cases go, how the, the feel for the courts? I, you know, does it matter? I'm going to say, uh, I think Tulsa and uh, Tiffany started this culture. That's the word we, we, I think we should use. The culture, I can remember being in the Allegheny County Courthouse as a young assistant DA and feeling like I could never, ever be a judge because the culture of the older male judges that were all white and feeling that there are times where I was belittled as a lawyer, clients were belittled, victims were belittled um, and mocked in open court on, on the record. If we come in there with the compassion and the respect that I know we will have, 
I think we can change the culture and make it unacceptable to behave that way. You know, I honestly think as women, and Rena and I are old enough to remember when a woman wore pants to federal court, a female attorney wore pants to federal court, and the judge just excoriated her for it. And I think um, we're all used to trying harder, right, in order to get things done. And Nicola touched on it. You know, older white men seem to get the pass, you know, to accomplish things, to be heard. And women have to try a little harder and fight a little bit more. And so I think we've all experienced that and we don't have any problem with it. So most of us don't want the job to be a judge. We want to do the work that comes with being a judge. And I think that's an important function. We never, we didn't allow ourselves to dream of being judges. I know I didn't until recently. And it's doing the work, not being the thing. That's really interesting. The motivation may be, may be different. Anybody else want to want to comment about how you think women will impact this, especially? Well, I certainly want to uh, add to what Lisa said because, uh, and and I and I did I I did not want to be a judge, even though my dad was one. He was the first elected black judge in Allegheny County in 1965. Uh, we have to know our history. Homer S. Brown was the first judge to sit the court of common pleas as first black. Uh, however, my dad was first elected. And so I did grow up believing that I could be a judge, but that I didn't, I didn't want that. That was not my dream. It was my brother's dream, but that was not my dream as a child. However, when I, I did want to be a lawyer and I wanted to help people, that's what I wanted to do. And, and as, as Lisa indicated, you know, when I entered the courtroom, multiple courtrooms as a female, I definitely found out that I was in a white male dominated industry, much like many other industries like uh, medicine and, and things like that. You know, they're, they have been traditionally white male dominated and, and, and it's different. And we're, we're getting ready to make some changes. I mean, there's certainly been women judges and black women judges, white women judges uh, uh, in, in Allegheny County, and they've made a diff difference you know, from the bench in their roles. And so we stand on their shoulders uh, and, and, and we got a lot of work to do. And if I may add, um, you know, one of the things that I always think in any elected office, but I think it's especially true in the courts where judges have so much power, they really do um, once on the bench. So I've always believed that the best elected officials or ones who have had some life experience, who have been marginalized in some way or have had to overcome challenges. And you approach public office and you approach every profession differently. But by having that power, there's just so much opportunity for change for people who aren't going to sit aside because they're never satisfied. They've always had to speak up and fight for themselves so they understand very differently the plights of the people who come before them. 
in Chelsea, we've also saw when it goes wrong, when judges all come from the same background and they have never had a lived experience of the person in front of them and have no idea what it might be like to be from New Kensington or to be from uh, McKeesport or some other area that they just never experienced. And those of us, all of us have had clients from many places throughout Western Pennsylvania and have dealt with people throughout the whole Commonwealth. And I think we have a better concept of understanding someone else's um, road and being very empathetic to it. All right, man, that's, we could go another 20 minutes just on this aspect of it, but, uh, all right, what else do you have going up? Oh, can't hear you. Sorry about that. I was on mute. Now, those were, uh, you know, some really, you know, um, you know, fan- fantastic, you know, responses. Uh, you know, one of my questions is, is, is about the campaign, like, because you all have come out, you know, you know, on these issues, have you seen the, the narrative, you know, ca- kind of change is, you know, you know, particularly over the years, I, I remember, you know, I'm 45, I'm old enough to remember, you know, like the, the tough on crime era and, 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 and kind of, you know, lock up and throw away the key. Do you feel like having, you know, such a cohesive unit? And I think in like solidarity was mentioned, I think before we, before we went live, do you think that's changed the conversation here locally and changed the tenor of the campaign and, and change the issues that people have been talking about, you know, on the trail, you know, um, in a way of, of maybe if there was, you know, nine or 10 seats open eight, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. So I definitely think that it has, I think that we're in a space where, um, even from the primary, right. One of the things that I used to talk about when we were in much larger forums on the primary is that, people have been forced into this space of like you it's not appropriate for you to be talking about lock them up and throw away the key right we are in a new day where people have to confront the reality that mass incarceration is a failed experiment um that has wiped away essentially a generation or more um of of black men and boys um and more in more recent decades black girls and women um, and that there has to be a change because this is not sustainable. I think last summer, um, when our country felt um, sort of on the brink, again, reiterated the fact that we cannot continue business as usual. It's not okay. Um, and that changes have to be made both incrementally or, or at a micro level and at a macro level. Um, that there has to be hands at the table, voices at the table at every um, level of the criminal legal system and the juvenile legal system. And I, and people engage with us um, about these issues on the campaign trail, whether we are just at a, you know, small little Democratic committee picnic or whether we're at a larger forum. Um, I feel like it's not a conversation that's only happening in Black communities. It's not a conversation that's only happening um, amongst affected families, but it's a conversation that's happening on a much broader level. Um, and it's critical now that we um, put action and work behind what we know has to change. Um, and we have that opportunity in about two and a half weeks or so to do that. Um, so I hope that we follow through and that we, um, as a county, um, and finish what we started on May 18th. And from a crowning aspect of, 
I'm sorry. Did someone else? Were you still talking? No, that's all right. You go right ahead. I was going to say from a from a criminal court perspective, um, you know, crime is wrong, and we do have to protect our communities. And so we're not going to take a, a shift from uh, uh, which what Katari talked about, uh, you know, getting rid of crime, uh, punishing crime, and take that total shift over to let everybody go. Oh, that's that's unrealistic. Also, um, now what I think we find more, and I hear in each one of my colleagues talk about persons with mental illness, persons with drug and alcohol uh, problems, persons that need counseling for for abuse, and those type of matters. And I'm sure I haven't named them all. That sometimes people need treatment. And, and, and they don't need to go to jail and languish in jail. They need to get treatment, whether it's for mental health, whether it's for drug and alcohol, whether it's for, for domestic violence. And, 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 and some of them need parenting skills, you know, and, and, and you, it's, it's a, unreal how many uh, young people I find have, no, have never been taught how to manage their lives, how to, how to budget, how to take care of their children. Because uh, they didn't have anybody teach them that. And and so, you know, we have to partner with various agencies and 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 uh, organizations that are able to provide those sort of uh, counseling and training and skills. And so sometimes people will be appropriate to divert them from, say, going to jail. And, and, and you can suspend a sentence, you know, and say, hey, you know what, if you'll go get assessed and get the treatment, follow the treatment plan, whatever it is, whether it's, again, mental health, drug and alcohol, or whatever it is, and then come back, show your certificate, and, and, and you know, we can then withdraw your case or do it as a disorderly conduct. Um, but if you don't do it, then, you know, hey, you've already pled guilty. And, and, and you know, so that helps people get treatment and get the help that they need sometimes. As a mental health hearing officer, uh, because I've been that for 26 years. When I was a magistrate, I could recognize mental illness in somebody. Not all the time. I'm not a psychiatrist, but there are times when you look and say, "Ooh, this person has mental illness," you know. And and so I could divert the case. Um, and and we do have mental health court, uh, which Lisa and and Tiffany and and others are very familiar with. We have drug and alcohol court in our criminal within our criminal division. But believe you me, there are folks that fall between the cracks. And they're not brought up in those courts. So you have to do something about it in your own courtroom. And, and so, yes, I think that we have the opportunity to, to make those sort of changes. And we're not going from, from one end of the spectrum all the way over to the other. But there are things that we can do. And I think that we are all uh, talking about those things and equipped to make those sort of changes in our own courtrooms. If I may add, um, just a Kahari's question on how much other candidates are committed to this. All of us are running alongside the other five candidates on the Democratic uh, ticket. So we've been asking everybody to please support not just us, but all 10 of the Democrats, and then also the four Democratic candidates running statewide. Um, and I can say that I, I think all of us would agree that we know that those candidates are also committed to these reforms wholeheartedly. And so for us, as a group of people running for office, electing those individuals are also really critical 
to ensuring um, the success of the reforms and the culture shifts that we're talking about. Can I just add to that? I think that people are starting to recognize that you know, we've been sold a bill of goods. We've been sold the notion that safety, public safety is contingent upon locking everybody up, you know, and the people that sold us on, on that, a lot of them were prosecutors. And that's why so many of the judges that you see in the courts went from the DA's office to the bench. And so you ended up with prosecutors arguing to former prosecutors to lock people up. And we've been doing that for a very long time. And instead of solving the problem, we've created even greater problems. We've taken, you know, people out of families, leaving them without mothers and fathers and siblings and support systems. So I think that this kind of ties back to what um, I believe Nicola and Chelsea and Tiffany and Renner were also saying about community and staying in the community. The people that are running for judge now, the people that have written the, the nomination are people who understand the interplay between communities and schools and courts and systems that support people. So if you put yourself, once you're elected on the bench and you put blinders on and you don't go back to the communities that you're familiar with or back to the communities that are most affected, you're not going to be a good judge. A good judge is one that understands the effects that their judgment has, not only the people that are standing in front of them, but on their families and on the communities that support those families. So I think that's a crucial component to all these ladies that I honestly get a little teary sometimes when I hear them talk because I think about the future um, of the courts with these folks on the bench. And like, I have so much hope and it really does. I mean, it, it, it's a really amazing feeling. Wow. And we have to like, follow uh, the dollar. I see what Lisa said. If you follow the dollar and you look at the fact that corrections, the corrections system is the largest and fastest growing industry in Pennsylvania, as well as across the country. And it's not going to work and it's not going to continue to grow unless we continue to put people in jail. So follow the dollar. And, and, and that, that's where part, a major part of the problem comes is that we have this institution. Right. So and not that we don't have to have corrections because we do, but not, not in the ways, I mean, as Lisa said, the DAs are putting people, you know, that's their job, put them in jail, put them in jail, put them in jail. It doesn't take into account, you know, what the needs of the people are in the community. So we to Kohari's question, and I think I love everything everyone says, but I agree that the conversation did change. There are so many progressives after George Floyd that wanted to understand why, what's happening. They may have never known that there's so much systemic bias from whoever gets pulled over to how, who, who ends up getting a probation violation, whose child gets removed from their home when Children and Youth Services gets involved. And they wanted to hear and they wanted to support us. And they went out, they knocked doors. They're still doing, giving us all their resources, which is amazing. And so that's a positive part of the change in the conversation. But what I want us to also focus on is it is not over. The, 
the five of us did not win yet. There are people running as Republicans who are touting law and order. They are putting on their Facebook pages that they're supported by the Fraternal Order of Police. I'm married to a retired prison guard. I believe in law enforcement, but I also don't believe in these dog whistles. And we know that that happens. And so that concerns me. And I think that all of the candidates, the, all, the 14 that Chelsea reminds us of uh, routinely, that all of us will, even though some of us are former prosecutors, we understand the dynamic of uh, balance, of restorative sanctions, rest uh, making our community whole, not only putting people in jail. So let's just be mindful that there are still people. We're not just talking 10, 20 years ago. There are people today who in Allegheny County running for judge who do not want to see what we will bring. Truth. Chelsea, you thought you were going to say something or. <laughs> no, I, I think Nicola covered it. I agree. I agree. I was thinking when Rutter was talking of just some of the misnomers that we hear. You know, so what we call it the Department of Corrections, it hasn't operated in the corrective fashion. So it's the language of restorative justice and right. how we really just need to shift the focus. Yeah, if we call it what it actually does, it wouldn't be nice. <laughs> Speaking of a name, Court of Common Pleas, I mean, it is, it is, we hear it, people don't necessarily understand what that is. And so I'm curious, uh, what is it the public does, doesn't know about what the Court of Common Pleas does? Well, Nicole, you should talk about housing court. <laughs> housing court. I don't do a lot of housing court, but I think what the Court of Common Pleas does is what people don't realize. So I think in the beginning, Kahari talked about the fact that um, there are different ways that all the counties and the um, uh all of the divisions do things. So in, Al in Allegheny County, we have four divisions. In a small county like Clarion, they have one judge who hears everything. We break it up into orphans court, uh, civil court, criminal court, and family division. And so within those divisions, there are, uh, there are several judges that are broken up. And in housing court is an important program that Lisa talked about in the civil division. Those type of problem solving things like in civil, the name change project, when we were going through the economic downturn, looking at um, looking at mortgages um, in family division, um, having um, generations, which deals with the custody cases and having a, a protection from abuse unit, having these specialized groups within each court, each each of these divisions helps to make sure that we are addressing problems. Um, obviously, we don't have all the solutions. One thing that the candidates have talked about is in civil divisions, sometimes general docket cases go around to different judges, um, as opposed to in family division, we have one family, one judge, which I'm sure Tiffany can speak to because it works really well with ju a, a family that may have a juvenile involved court involvement, but also may have a custody matter or a divorce matter. And so you're not going back and forth between judges. And I'll stop there because we could really talk about all of this all night. I would just, um, I, I put a link there, um, if you all can see it. So the uh, Unified Judicial System for Pennsylvania has some very helpful staff on the cases that are adjudicated across all of the divisions. So the most recent staff are from 2019, which is probably a good metric because it was before the pandemic hit us. So it's probably a more kind of typical year. But what you see there, um, among other things, are I mentioned earlier 
how few of the matters are in trial period, how very, very few, um, less than even 1% are in jury trials. So I hear this commonly, um, I think of what Nicola was talking about before, that we're all still running. And when you hear some of the rhetoric um, from some of our opponents on the other side, they would like to make the public believe, some of them, that, you know, this is the, you know, old system of years ago. And it's really, really not. And I've always believed that statistics are important because they shouldn't be partisan. I know we live, unfortunately, in a different era where people debate now what are facts and what are not. Um, but I think that's really interesting. And another thing you can look at on this website is how few of our cases actually go through a problem-solving court. And that was something Nicola also mentioned earlier in terms of, yes, they are great programs, but there are still challenges with those in terms of having to um, enter a plea in order to get into those programs. Um, and all throughout the campaign, I think a lot of people have pointed to those correctly as some of the positives in our court system. But we have to recognize how very few people are afforded that opportunity. I think one thing I would want people to know, not necessarily about, um, like, you know, this division or that division, but that um, with very few exceptions, your courts are public spaces. You can go in and you can watch court in the civil division, in the criminal division, and there's very few hearings that are um, just not open to the public. Um, and I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I don't love um, sometimes in criminal division is that frequently when you walk into courtrooms, um, it's like, who are you? Why are you here? And, you know, what's your case? And listen, these are public spaces. You are allowed to just go in and observe the people that you elected and see how they're doing their job. And I know ALC has a great court watch program, um, but... You know, just as a citizen, when I used to practice in D.C., we had people who came to just watch trials because they thought trials were interesting, right? And so they would be there to just court watch. And so I, I want to encourage people to go in and see um, what's going on when you have time, if you have time, and once we're back to normal, whatever normal will be after. Go watch some court, right? Um, I think that it's, um, I think that it's really helpful. And um, I think that it helps people to be sort of demystified some of the process. Um, it doesn't have to be um, as overwhelming as sometimes it feels. I was going to say, does, um, they can watch virtually as well. I believe the Abolitionist Law Center, didn't they sue judge, judge someone? <laughs> in order to be able to um, be, to have access as they should to see hearings. Absolutely. You know, and I love that Tiffany used the word demystify because I think that's what we really need to do. You know, this this whole black robe and sit up higher than everybody else so that, you know, it's all a super secret thing that only the judge can understand is not nonsensical. You know, there are good judges and there are judges in the family division that get off the bench and they come down and they sit at tables and talk to children because um, that's a much better and more effective way to communicate with people. Um, and we had a judge resign last year, last year or two years ago, who did not ha have any idea of how to speak to 
the people that came before him. So I don't, it doesn't have to be a mystery and you don't have to keep people um, in ignorance about why you make any particular decision. Why should a judge, particularly in a high profile case, not have to give their findings of fact and conclusions of law? Don't wait. We've worked for the people of Allegheny County and for a judge. So what, here are the facts that I found to be the credible facts. And here is the law that I applied. And here's how the law affected the facts. And that's why I came up with my decision. When did we decide judges don't have to explain themselves? You know, so I love that word, Tiffany, demystify. People will feel better leaving the courthouse having known you listen to them and that you, regardless of what the answer is. I, I, I just had Judge Harnack sentence my client to seven years in the federal penitentiary, but I thanked him at the end because he, for about two hours, listened to everything, every piece of evidence, every, he looked at everything we submitted, and then he respectfully listened to my client and explained everything. And what Lisa is describing is what should happen. Uh, even in family division, I've had Judge Bush, before we leave the courtroom, say, you will get an order, but here's what I heard. This is the evidence that I took into account. These are the factors, and this is why I'm going to decide this way. And I, that is powerful. I feel good even when I get a bad result, leaving with that. That's so incredibly important. I mean, what you're doing tonight is, is, is incredibly important. It's given a face to, uh, to, to the law. I mean, it, it, it is this big black kind of, oh my God, we've got to go in. I don't know what's going to happen. Who are the people there? They're, you know, they're, and, and not without reason. I mean, looking at the, the number of folks who, who are going to jail, especially those who look like me, it is a very intimidating place. And so, you know, I'm so appreciative that of you sharing your philosophies and yeah, Rena, I, I see you, you wanted to say something really quickly. Oh, we can't hear you. You're on mute. Uh-oh. You're on mute. Rena, can you hear us? You're on mute. I don't think she can. Oh, there she is. <laughs> okay. You got to start again. Now, I think you, I think you muted it by accident again. Yeah, Ritter, we still can't hear you. I, th I think you hit the mute button twice. Right there. There you, there you go. Yeah. Okay, all right. That, you know. Sorry. Uh, I think that many persons in the public are aware in both criminal, in the criminal uh, system as well as in the juvenile system that there is an opportunity for a first-time offender to uh, have their case uh, handled in a manner in which they will end up with an expunged record at the end. And in the criminal system, it's called the ARD, uh, ARD system. And in the juvenile system, it's called consent decree. And they're both good programs. And they allow, like I said, a first-time offender to end up with uh, an expunged record. It, they both require a term of probation with some conditions that have to be met, which might be maybe some fine restitution, uh, uh, maybe some community service, maybe some treatment. Um, it, it, those things are more case specific on a case by case, uh, basis. But the one thing that I think that, and this is what people don't know is that with each of those systems, the, uh, uh, the person who has been aggrieved, the, the, the victim has to agree to allow this defendant to go into this program. And I, I don't think that's right. Cause some, some, uh, victims are, 
just so uh, hell-bent on getting revenge that they don't care to have someone have an opportunity. And in, in some person's lives, especially uh, if it's a young person or if it's a child, the this, this, this expungement allows them to have a clean record and start over. And in fact, and the idea of it, the goal of it is to, you know, get this behind you and become a productive citizen and not get in trouble again. And this actually will work in, in, in many persons' lives. But if the victim doesn't allow it, then you end up with a sti the stigma on your record uh, of having a record. And, and I think that we should change that and that this should be the 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 whether you qualify or not should be left in the hands of the judge. I think that's why we have judges. We we should have the ability to make that decision if someone qualifies to get in that program, not that it's left in the hands of the victim. And that's certainly a judge who has listened to why the victim thinks they shouldn't be in it, so that you're listening to both sides before you make that decision. But I think I think a judge is qualified to make that decision. All right. So, Kahari, you want to wrap it up? I know we're looking at eight o'clock now. Yeah. First, I, 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 I want to thank, um, you know, everyone, uh, you know, for joining us this evening and, and participating in such an enlightening conversation. And, um, you know, we started this tradition with, with Miracle um, asking this question and, and, and the spirit, again, of, of humanizing. Folks always say that, you know, particularly at this point in the political season, um, it's very um, interesting. I mean, it's very uh, oftentimes rather uh, it is interesting, but uh, but oftentimes, you know, we see human beings get reduced to caricatures, you know, at this point in the political season. So we always want to take an opportunity to kind of, you know, re kind of reconnect, uh, you know, with, with, with the humanity. Um, so because I know on my, I call, always call it the Hollywood squares with the, the Zoom, StreamYard, Spring. So maybe we go uh, Nicola. Chelsea, Tiffany, Lisa, then uh, Renna. Um, but the question that we always, always ask to kind of lighten the flavor before we leave is uh, what brings you joy um, to talk about, you know, so we get again in the spirit of getting to know these candidates beyond the talking points, beyond the websites and the Facebook pages, um, you know, and, and the press releases, you know, um, you know, what brings you joy? So we'll go Nicola, Chelsea, Tiffany, Lisa, then Renna. What brings me joy and keeps me really busy, they, the candidates will attest to this because I always run home to make sure that on Saturdays it's my turn to cook. So I have two teenage children, a husband and a golden retriever who's absolutely beautiful, Max. And my family means a lot to me and it brings me joy. But, you know, like everybody else, teenagers keep you busy. So that's it for me. <laughs> And I think I'd answer the same. Um, my better half, Kamari, mostly. <laughs> um, and our two sons. I mean, it's, you know, to me, always the most important thing. And as an elected official, I've always said, that's what makes me a better elected official. My first priority is always going to be my family. Um, I think for me, what's bringing me joy right now is um, my goddaughter, Savannah. Uh, we went to the pumpkin patch yesterday. Um, she is two and a half and she is all nose and um, temper tantrums. And she is really just living out my internal spirit every day right now. Um, so I am grateful for her. Um, and um, 
yeah, so that's my that's my joy right now. Okay, I'm going to break from the mold and I'm going to say, so when I bought my house, it was in very bad shape and had, I was just divorced. It had like a red tag furnace and some triple shag carpet. I mean, I had some serious problems going on here and I um, needed to get rid of the carpet and I bought bamboo, which was very cheap. It was like a dollar 29 a square foot. And when I asked them how much it would cost to lay the floor, they told me $4 a square foot. And I said, I'm not paying $4 a square foot to lay this garbage $1.29 floor. So I watched YouTube videos and I bought saws. And so what really has given me joy over the last 20 years that I've lived in this house is taking something that was much in much need of help and physically working on it to make it something that I'm really proud of and and it was able to raise my children in and show them the value of hard work and in investing in the future. So looking around this little house now gives me joy. Love. <laughs> All right. Rita, she had a chance to share. So oh no. Oh, she can come back. I don't know. It looks like a death ring, guys. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. You called it. <laughs> oh, man. What a what a wonderful way to wrap on. Uh, big smiles on faces. It really, that was a very centering question. Because that's who you are when you go to the court. The things that bring you joy um, also sustain you, I know. Uh, when you're sitting there and you're you're making hard decisions because everybody in front of you is trying to find a joy space too, right? Uh, that's that's a part of living. So, man, I could not appreciate more uh, having you guys come on and and talk about. So this stuff is heavy, but you make it bite sized and understandable. And I know for me, and I know you know, Carrie, you do this all the time, but I don't. And and it really was very very useful for, to me to get a better understanding of what it is you'll be doing when you are elected. Because people are going to show up and make sure that happens. Oh, uh, looks our last moment of joy with Rita once. You're back. Yay. Can she hear us? Yeah, Rita, can you hear us? Can I can hear you. Can you see yeah. me or hear me? Yeah, we, yeah, we can see and hear you. Yeah, yeah we're still, we're, we're patiently waiting to hear what brings you joy. So we're glad that you're back. It sounds like a bottle. I'm sorry. I don't know. This is technology. It's just, I didn't touch it. It just, it just shut off all by itself. Um, professionally, uh, I told you earlier that what brings, what would bring me joy would be someone coming and telling me what a, what a great job I did for them and how well they are doing in their life. Um, over this whole election period, I've been around and gotten to see so many people all over Allegheny County and it is all it's almost overwhelming with the number of people that have come to me and told me something that I did for them or how I helped them, or, you know, and, and the conviction and the dedication with which I did that. It, I, I don't think of those things and I don't know that I'm doing that. I just liked helping people and I can do it every day. And so that has uh, brought me a lot of joy during this this uh, campaign period uh, in ways that I never expected. Uh, and like everyone else, my family is what brings me joy. I have a daughter, Michelle Roberta, who is now with. 
So, so on that note. <laughs> no, I think they were calling us. I know Brenna's very excited that her daughter's expecting. So yeah. Planning on becoming a grandmother. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, well, I want to thank uh, Nicola Henry Taylor, Tiffany Sizemore, Lisa Middleman, Brenna Watson, and of course, full disclosure, as many know my wife. I'm Chelsea Wagner uh, for joining us. And, and also, I'm Dr. Shohal Russell uh, for stepping in and helping out uh, with Miracle Joseph, helping facilitate a wonderful uh, conversation. Um, so the best of luck um, to all of you and looking forward to continuing to ha have conversations. Hopefully everyone will be victorious and maybe part of that, uh, that community engagement process is, you know, we can continue these conversations in another vein you know, uh, hopefully if you make it to the other side as officers of the court and, you know, continue this, this engagement, you know, cause that is one group of elected officials that obviously can't be involved in politics, but can be involved, you know, in civic life and be involved in community, you know, engagement. So hopefully we can continue these lines of communication, obviously not during campaign season, but, uh, you know, as actual officers of the court. So thank you so much. We're so, so glad to have you. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing this for the conversation. And always good to see the others. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to Renna Watson as well. Wish you luck. Vote everybody. Everybody, yeah, absolutely. Every everybody vote. Um, so just a couple uh, uh quick announcements this uh, Friday. Uh we are having an event with Moms Rising and a US Senator Bob Casey. It's gonna be at Shinley Plaza in Oakland. It's going to start at 11 a.m. And the event is called Lifting Up Caregivers um, about the urgent need to invest in caregivers as we build back better from the pandemic. And our special guest will be U.S. Senator uh, Bob Casey. We're very excited. So everybody come out, um, check out uh, the event. It is um, on our Facebook page now. And you'll be hearing more information um, about that. Um, um, in the coming days as we get to Friday. So again, it'll be this Friday at 11 a.m. at Shinley Plaza. So again, I want to thank um, all five candidates uh, for joining us this evening. Nicola Henry-Taylor. I want to thank Rita Watson. I want to thank Tiffany Sizemore. I want to thank Lisa Middleman. And of course, uh, my wife, Chelsea Wagner, uh, for joining us. And thank you. Uh, Dr. Russell, do you have any uh, final words before we adjourn for the evening? Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute, Cheryl. Just wanted to encourage people to pass this video around to make sure, you know, to, to help educate and to help inspire people to, to go and vote. Because I think there was a lot of great information in here. And you get to know the, these folks as real people. And I think it's really, really critical. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. And as you can see on the, on, the, on the scroll at the bottom of the screen, if you are not registered to vote, you have until 11.59 p.m. tonight to register online. Um, you can go to the Department of State's website. Uh, you can also, we had um, dropped earlier in, in the comments, our online voter guide. You can actually go through that portal as well uh, on onehoodpower.org. You can go to resources and click on the link ballot ready. It'll take you to our online voter guide, which will allow you to check your registration status. And if you need to register to vote, it will take you directly to the state site. October 26th is the deadline to apply for a mail-in ballot. And Tuesday, November 2nd is the big day, which could be a very, very historic day in Western Pennsylvania. Um, if folks come out 
and, and participate in the process like folks did in the primary, uh, the whole city government as well as the county courts uh, could be transformed in a way we have never seen um, in the history of, of Western Pennsylvania. So it's a very, very exciting time. All right. All right, so everyone, thanks so much. Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, join us again uh, next Monday night for a pre-election uh, special. We're going to be doing two pre-election specials. Next week, we're going to be focusing on local races. And then the following Monday, the night before the election, election eve, we'll be talking about the statewide races. So again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for our guests. And thank you, uh, Dr. Russell, for uh, for coming in in the clutch. Yes, sir. All right, you get the, you get the real deal. Coming back uh, next week. With yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, you take care and, and thanks everybody for tuning in. Yep. Have a good night.